Good morning. I'm Sanaa and you're listening to Let's Grab Coffee on WYXR 91.7 FM. Every Monday morning, I'm joined by experts from across the country who are investigating our most pressing social issues and common curiosities. Over the next hour, you'll learn about their inspirations, motivations, and of course, what they know about the world around us. So go ahead and grab that cup of coffee and get ready for a fun and insightful conversation. Climate change, racism, spinach in your teeth, that lipstick on your collar. These are problems that exist but are often actively denied by the individuals who contribute to them, by those who are impacted by them, and those who observe them. How and why does denial become a part of our social world? Denial, how we hide, ignore, and explain away problems is Dr. Jared Del Rosso's latest book, and I cannot tell you all how excited I am to have him on our show today. Dr. Del Rosso is an associate professor in the Department of Sociology and Criminology at the University of Denver. His scholarly articles and his first book, Talking About Torture, reveal the forms of denial and acknowledgement used in debates about waterboarding, force feeding, and other forms of torture employed during the War on Terror. Well, good morning, Jared. Thank you so much for joining us. Good morning. Thank you for having me. I have to tell you, as soon as I saw the title of your book, it immediately grabbed my attention. And I said, oh my goodness, I have to have this author on the show because denial, I mean, it's so relevant to our daily lives. And I'm in particular thinking about a lot of these major social problems and major scandals that we see pop up all the time. And it seems like every day kind of now. And I'm like, how do we engage in denial of these events that seem so factual and have so much evidence? Yeah, and I I think that that question that concern is also was also animating me when I when I wrote this book. It is um, curious, I think, perplexing maybe to 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 watch when we see something that seems indisputable, to see something that when it seems that you know the word that we use is undeniable, and yet and yet we have a remarkable capacity to to deny that which is undeniable. And, you know, you pointed out that my, my initial, my kind of previous work focused on the denial of torture. Mm-hmm. And that work really stemmed out of uh, political developments in 2004, when images depicting torture in Iraq were released in the, the US press right before presidential election. And, mm-hmm. you know, photographs of something are considered the most undeniable kind of thing. And yet what you find when you look closely at the ways in which those were processed in the media and in politics is all kinds of forms of denial to walk the line between saying, yes, this happened, but it's not nearly as bad as we think it is. And so there's all kinds of ways in which we can, you know, people, humans, political leaders, media elites, corporate elites can transform that which is undeniable into something which is hidden, obscured, minimized, euphemized, all kinds of ways. Yes. And I love how in the book, you kind of walk us through some of these, I would say, kind of like everyday denials that we engage in. We probably already denied something today if we've interacted Mm -hmm. with with other people. Um, And you you take us from kind of those everyday, seemingly harmless denials and then build it out to show how 
some of these everyday practices can then be used to deny some some very harmful uh, problems that are happening in society. And so I love how you kind of slow walk us <laughs> through yeah. that so we can see, oh, wait, it's us too, right? We are engaged in these behaviors um, and, and why they serve a purpose in some ways um, that are protective and that are helpful, but then in other ways we um, can harm ourselves and others in the process. Um, so I'm wondering if you could kind of start us out there with some of these everyday denials yeah, that yeah. are maybe more pro-social or healthy um, sure. for us to engage in. Sure. And so that's the kind of remarkable thing about denial is that it takes really different forms and it has really different consequences depending on how it's used, when it's used, who it's used by. And in writing the book, uh, I was really interested in, in starting there, starting with these everyday interactions you know, the quintessential examples of a public speaker with something in their teeth or something wrong with how they've, you know, they've buttoned their shirt um, or the mistakes that they make as they, as the presentation unfolds. All of these kind of every, well, not all of these everyday forms, but many of these everyday forms are really just about us trying to correct and, and, and make do in our social interactions with others when, when something when there's kind of a hiccup or a speed bump in them, you know, we can't stop every time that there's a, um, a blunder, a mistake between us and someone else. And, and we kind of wouldn't want to, because we risk, we risk, we risk bringing kind of embarrassment and humiliation into our everyday social lives. Mm -hmm. I say this as someone who has a pretty strong a kind of vicarious embarrassment response. When one person is embarrassed, I can feel it on their behalf. I'll watch like cringeworthy shows through through my hands. I was recently <laughs> oh, at a no. movie that plays with embarrassment a lot and I have my jacket over my head just because <laughs> I couldn't bear to see people do such embarrassing things. And that's kind of like our everyday lives. You know, we have a really, many of us, not all of us, some, of, some people are really kind of uh, capable of working with embarrassment and making it work for themselves and others in, in really helpful ways. But some of us just kind of want to withdraw. And so we have these strategies like pretending we haven't noticed, mm -hmm. um, using tact, using poise, using humor to reframe it, to just kind of minimize these everyday forms of denial so that they don't fully disrupt our social lives. Mm -hmm. Yes. And I was thinking about just the ways that I, you know, myself engaged in denial. And I was thinking about this in particular because yesterday uh, I went to breakfast with a friend and I noticed that my own zipper was unzipped. Right. And so it was like top of mind. Like, and then I'm wondering, did other people notice? Right, I'm sure. Yeah. But no one is going to say, hey, excuse me. <laughs> right. And especially not a stranger to a stranger. Yeah. Um, and as you kind of talk about in the book, we have an expectation for how these social interactions are supposed to go. And so we want to keep up that kind of line of action smoothly. And so we ignore or we deny that something has happened that has disrupted what we expected. Definitely. And I think that act of not noticing is probably among the most powerful among the most foundational forms of denial we have in our everyday life, because if we can effectively pretend we don't even notice something that we definitely have noticed, then we don't have to engage with it. We don't have mm -hmm. to try to try to let the person know like, hey, something's wrong here. In your case, an example of a zipper down, um, you know, sociologists and criminologists have all kinds of uh, we call them norm breaching experiments to have mm -hmm. people play with expectations in social life. 
And I, I write in the book how I, I, I've done this a lot in, in the first day of my classes. I've misbuttoned a shirt, worn a sweater inside out, had ketchup on my face when we were <laughs> when we were remote amid COVID. My, my, my webcam was aimed at the very top of my head. And 30, 40 minutes can go by and no one will say anything. And partly that's because of the power relationship right. between a professor and a student, but also because it's really uncomfortable to point to be the one who yeah. breaks the silence to break the act of not noticing. And so kind of downstream from this, like as this kind of form of not noticing, not speaking, remaining silent develops and changes and enters different contexts, that's when these issues like harm, institutional problems, political problems really emerge. But the everyday life, you know, our everyday interactions, I, I really do think denial has a role in just keeping the interaction moving forward and not bringing everything to a halt every time there's a, a small and relatively benign issue. Um, mm -hmm. If we're the subject of it, if we're the one who's like, why didn't anyone tell me? We might feel differently. But that, <laughs> yes. that moment where we're not noticing, not talking about it, we can kind of get by usually. Mm -hmm. In the book, you talk about um, denial as a kind of attention management strategy or, and that really made me think, yes, we do learn what to give our attention to yeah. and what to deny or what to ignore. And that really helped me think about it as well, right? What is relevant in our social world? What is what we deem as irrelevant? So what we notice or what we don't notice, but a lot of the book, you focus on these rhetorical strategies, yeah. Yeah. Uh, which I found really fascinating, again, because it's not just what other people do, uh, but it's also what we do ourselves when someone might draw attention um, to, to some of our own misconduct or, or misbehavior as well. Yeah. Yeah. And so I, that's really kind of the way I entered the study of denial, because I really enjoy and I'm kind of endlessly curious by how we use language. And so when I, when I was studying the the politics of torture, I was really looking at the forms of language that people would use to describe to describe these acts, some of which were photographed, some of which were documented in in written form, some of which were not documented at all. So how do we use language to 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 make these real or in a sense unreal and denied? And again, with with denial, on the everyday level, we have a set of, excuses, justific justifications, disclaimers that permeate what we do that are there kind of all the time when we're late for a meeting or right. we are, you know, absent from a class and we have to account for ourselves or late to work or absent, missing a day from work. We have all these ways of kind of walking the line between saying, yes, I know what I've done is not what you would want to wanted me to have done. You know, a missed class or a missed day of work, of course, is a normal part of this experience, but we often feel inclined to say, and I'm also committed to this. I am committed to work. I am committed to my class. And there's something else that's preventing me from being there. So the 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 forces that we can refer to, like illness, sickness, traffic, all those kinds of things, technology problems that keep us from meeting deadlines because allegedly our computer has crashed or a document <laughs> has been lost. Um, all of those everyday forms show up in our political lives. They take slightly different forms and they have very different consequences. Um, but what is endlessly fascinating to me is just how many of them are there for us to use and how really capable we are. You know, we we grow up learning how to effectively use excuses and justifications, and then we have to kind of reckon with that as we as we as we use them. And um, yeah, the the ways that we can use language, it's like endlessly transformable um, and endlessly usable. 
Yes. And, you know, I love this focus on language and even the types of excuses or um, justifications or disclaimers that we use, because as you talk about, even in some of the examples you just shared now, uh, missing work, um, and it, we know that it's not acceptable just to say, oh, I'm going to just uh, go on a vacay with my friends, right? And go hang yeah. out at the beach, right? But yeah. we can come up with some other sort of reason that fits within what is deemed acceptable in the workplace situation. Situation. Yep. yep. Um, yeah. And the same. And I thought, of course, as a, a professor as well, you know, something we always talk about are our students kind of and how they come up with a variety of of excuses or uh, justifications for missing class, missing assignments, and they all fall within this realm of kind of what's acceptable that, as you mentioned, would still show, oh, there are students who are serious, quote unquote, right, about their education and that respect you or, or respect, you know, the idea of, of education. Um, but this is the reason why they were not able to fulfill a certain expectation. That's exactly right. So in, in using these excuses and justifications, we're really trying to man, maintain kind of our identity and relationship to other people. Um, and, and, and sometimes or often it's better to rely, you know, if that's the goal, it's more effective to rely on these kind of boilerplate or standardized excuses and justifications to, to do that work. And so when I teach this, you know, I, I use attendance as an example and it really begins to shift sometimes how students will account for their absences to me. <laughs> they will be self-reflective. They will say, I know this is this kind of excuse, but wow. here you go. Here's why I won't be in <laughs> class today. And, you know, on one hand, I think we have dueling pressures. There's this broader kind of, I don't want to come out as saying I'm pro-deceit or pro-lying because I'm not in the study of denial. Mm -hmm. And yet there's a quote that I'm going to paraphrase from the sociologist Irving Goffman, who said something to the effect of, who wrote something to the effect of, sometimes a true account is good, but sometimes a false account is better. Mm -hmm. Better in the sense of we are engaged in a collective pro, you know, process of um, interacting with each other, maintaining collective values that are sometimes in conflict with each other. And there are going to be moments when we can't meet both standards at the same time. And so what denial allows us to do is basically say, I'm still invested in whatever I'm working on with you. So I'm still invested in your course, mm -hmm. but for whatever reason, I'm not going to be in the class today. And here is an explanation that helps you see that though I'm not there, I still believe in this shared project that you and I and the rest of the class has. And <laughs> And I feel more ambivalent about saying that that's always beneficial, always pro-social than say when we are, you know, just ignoring things to get the interaction by. But there is something really, really important about the ways that we use excuses and justifications to affirm our shared collective projects at work or in school or, you know, mm -hmm. with family, friends, colleagues, all that. Mm -hmm. Yeah, absolutely. I'm thinking about, you know, how often we say like a little white lie yeah. um, and that it, you know, it's more helpful than harmful, or at least we think it is in order to maintain the relationship or in order to maintain kind of whatever that social interaction is. Now, I know we've kind of used these words, excuses and justifications, yeah. but could you kind of define those out for our listeners? Yeah, definitely. So an excuse is, are, are these statements and, and claims that we make these, you know, these uses of language in which we downplay or deny our responsibility for something. 
So we basically, I mean, it boils down to it's not our fault, but there are all kinds of ways of, of doing that, of, of, you know, you can claim something was an accident. You can claim you didn't intend it. So you had good intentions, which itself is really problematic when it shows up in particular forms at collective political organizational levels. And you can also claim that there are these forces outside your control. Criminologists refer to it as fatalistic forces, fatalistic in the sense that we give up responsibility for our actions. Mm-hmm. And they've studied, criminologists have studied the ways that people who are accused of crimes will, will claim things like addictions, childhood trauma. Mm-hmm. Um, I think fatalistic for- forces can also take less, less deep forms. Like I think, I think especially things like traffic, technology, weather, are these forces out of our control that sometimes do really disrupt our lives and and really cause us to feel like we can't meet some expectation, some deadline, some obligation that we have. And so um, those are the excuses. Justifications are essentially the arguments, the claims, the statements we can use to say, yes, I did this, but it's not as bad as you think it is. There's mm-hmm. some underlying explanation or reason or cause that makes this act acceptable. So here we're talking about here we're talking about kind of explanations for our behavior that will downplay the harms that we do to others. And again, these can be profoundly damaging. I want to you know walking the line across this book between the kinds of forms of denial that can be used productively or in benign kind of ways and they really very quickly can slide into harmful forms of denial. And I think that the the chapter that focuses on disclaimers and j- excuses and justifications really shows that. Um, so denying harm to the victims of one's actions, uh, people who shoplift use this. They'll say that you know the corporate, com- the company that I'm taking from, they're the real thieves. They've out overpriced goods. They're exploiting labor. They're exploiting workers. They're basically stealing from me by by causing me to spend all this money on everyday products. And so we can use justifications to basically say there is some good legitimate reason for this kind of behavior, which other people view as problematic. Mm, Thank you. Thank you for that. Okay, so let's take a quick break. And when we jump back in, we'll get into some of these examples that move us beyond kind of these everyday gaps to more of these social problems. You're listening to Let's Grab Coffee on WYXR 91.7 FM. I'm Sanaa, and you're here on WYXR 91.7 FM. This is Let's Grab Coffee. And today I'm chatting with Dr. Jared Del Rosso, the author of Denial, How We Hide, Ignore, and Explain Away Problems. Jared, I am really obsessed (laughs) with your book because... There are so many social problems. I'm thinking about climate change. I'm thinking about systemic racism. I'm thinking about scandal after scandal from our politicians, right? The people who we're trusting to to lead us, hopefully (laughs) somewhere. Um, And yet we see so much denial in in all of these actions. And so that's why I love this book, because I think it really gives the reader a, a way to understand how denial operates, why, and how we're also engaged in denial in our everyday lives as well and kind of what to do about it. Um, I know that a lot of your previous work was looking at torture and particularly denial. And so I want to start there um, because I I think that's something we can all agree on is, is wrong and bad, but yet 
we see denial, right, from those engaged in it and then even those who learn of it as well. Yeah. Um, so can you talk a little bit about um, denial in, in these cases of these major social problems or major harms where it seems like, okay, there is there is evidence that this has happened, yeah. but yet we see denial. Yeah. And, and you said something really interesting there, which is, you know, with my previous work on torture, we can all agree that torture is wrong. And indeed, there's some evidence that th there was a relative agreement about that. And mm -hmm. yet what we saw and how we saw that affect how we talked about torture in this country was a lot of denial about what actually torture was. And so when there would be revelations about something like the CIA using waterboarding or the the photographing of torture at Abu Ghraib prison in Iraq, the argument, the first kind of line of defense, meaning the first kind of forms of denial you're going to see are the claims that this is not torture for whatever reason. It doesn't meet a legal standard. Mm -hmm. It was fairly safely conducted, which is generally untrue if you look at the kind of investigations of this, but it could, it was a credible claim publicly for people who wanted to defend these practices. And so when we're thinking about denial, we can always ask the question of what is denial telling us about what shared values we have. And the thing that gave me some sense of optimism or hope while studying the debate about torture was very rarely did people make a full, did the people who were pro what I would call pro torture actually make a full scale pro torture argument. They would use forms of denial to say, this is not quite that this is mm -hmm. not quite torture. This is safe. This is lawful. And I want to be very clear that that wasn't the case when you look at what the evidence shows us about how these practices were used. And also indeed they, they do rise to the level of torture as well as in humane treatment. And yet few people want to cross the line mm -hmm. um, to say that torture is acceptable. But what that means is denial allows us to transform something that we don't want to emit into something that we can emit. And that was the case with torture. Um, you know, different social problems operate differently. So with climate change, there was for the longest time, really outright forms of denial, like, no, this is not happening. Mm -hmm. And we call that in the social sciences, we call that literal denial or outright denial. And at a certain point that transforms into, yes, it's happening, but it's not caused by people. It's not caused by human activity. Mm -hmm. And so what you see there is a, is a moment where it's climate change is increasingly undeniable at the empirical level, but the underlying causes are still open for debate among some people. And that has implications for the creation of policy, the, the creation of social change. Uh, so with every kind of political and social problem, we can ask ourselves what is revealed in a sense by the kinds of denials that are used at any particular moment. Mm, yes. I mean, I think that's so important to consider, you know, exactly what you said, how denial or the, the strategies of denial can shift where people can concede to something that exists that in, in the case of torture, torture is wrong, um, and then explain away their own actions as not torture, because yeah. we have the shared understanding that this act is wrong. I was not involved in it, right? And these are the reasons why. 
Um, so at creating that distance, or even as you mentioned, in the case of climate change, which we see a lot of climate change denials, even in the face of us living <laughs> through it um, and very much experiencing um, the effects of climate change, but now shifting that blame, um, as you mentioned, on who is really the cause or is there a cause that we can do something about or is it simply inevitable? Yep. Yeah, most definitely. And, um, you know, with with how that kind of trickles back into our everyday lives is this sense that, you know, if a problem is inevitable and we can't potentially imagine some form of social change or political change, it's easy and also probably somewhat protective to slide back into just this outright form of I'm not going to think about it. Mm -hmm. If if there's nothing I can do about it. I don't want to think about it. I don't want to talk about it. Um, with climate change, the sociologist Kari Marie Norgard has written a really excellent book called Living in Denial. And she shows how those everyday emotions contribute to the forms of denial that we use. If a problem seems unfixable, if mm -hmm. a problem seems beyond, especially in the US when we think of things in very individualistic terms, if we can't imagine anything beyond recycling and changing light bulbs, for instance, we're likely to to, to protect ourselves so we don't feel the, the the guilt, we don't feel the helplessness, we don't feel the fear. Um, and we're likely to, you know, not want to bring it up with other people or only bring it up through through humor, which is a really powerful form of denial because it lets us admit something mm -hmm. without feeling vulnerable to what we're admitting. We feel kind of in charge or in control. And so for me, both as an educator and as a sociologist, I've really begun thinking about how we frame problems to each other and especially our students, but but definitely to each other and how we make each other aware of the fact that, yeah, political problems are intractable. They're difficult. They're systemic. They're large scale, but there are people doing really important work and making both local, regional and national change. So for me, in a sense, the opposite of denial is like a form of hope that links us to forms of social change that can allow us to maybe lean into these problems without, without always feeling overwhelmed by them. Mm, I love that because as I was reading your book, it really made me think about my students. Um, so I teach a class called Racial and Ethnic Minorities, and it's really about systemic racism, um, both past and present, and also about social change, right? What can we do about it? And I always have my students think through, okay, we've talked about all these various, you know, social problems or manifestations of systemic racism. What is something, you know, create a plan, you know, if you had all the resources, if you had all the connections, what is something you could do? And the majority of the time, students always say education. Yeah. Like we could just educate people that these problems exist and then that would be enough. And it always, I'm always a little disappointed <laughs> because I'm like, you couldn't think of policy change. You couldn't think of, you know, like anything else, but just educating people. Uh, but I think, you know, kind of what you just said points to one of those reasons why this is the most common um, kind of solution because it seems manageable. It does seem something that they could do as an individual that doesn't require, you know, buy-in, you know, political buy-in or a lot of, of resources. Even as I tell them, like, you can imagine, you know, whatever you would like, um, but they always come back to these very individual solutions to these social problems. 
Yeah. And, and I think, so I, I teach a course or I have taught a course over the last couple of years called Sociologies of Hope, which is in a sense, my answer to the teaching I do on violence and denial, particularly amid the COVID-19 pandemic, when it was very easy for all of us um, and remains easy for all of us to, to feel really deep senses of despair, the disruptions to higher education and to life more generally and broadly. And one of the things I think both as educators, but also as political citizens that we would could really work on is bringing those forms of change that are beyond the individual to the foreground. This gets back to those attention management strategies. And I, I think our like our imaginations of change mm -hmm. often tend to be under development. They're still needing a lot of cultivation, uh, care, mm -hmm. because we simply don't know in many cases, you know, there are people who do the people who are engaged in social movements, mm -hmm. in organizations that work on policy and advocacy. I mean, they obviously are working on these things. Um, but I think, but I think to kind of bring our students along with these social problems and, you know, as a collective becoming aware that that change is possible. We, we get a lot of news about, you know, thinking about climate change, for instance, about many of the failures of climate change policies, international treaties. And that is part of the story. And that's, that is indeed true. I don't want to be in denial of these problems. I'm, I'm working in Colorado, which is particularly vulnerable to climate change, given heat, given drought. Mm -hmm. um, you know, we suffer through wildfires. We suffer through extreme drought. We suffer through really polluted air. And yet, and yet there are victories to be recognized, victories that often come from collective action. And seeing that can help us resist the really protective impulse, the protective, in a sense, cocoon of denial. Mm -hmm. And it's kind of where the book ends, <laughs> in part because I got to the end and, you know, there's probably a, another book to write, but it couldn't be right there. And the book kind of ends with the promise of, you know, collective action as a way of transforming our our social life and our collective world mm -hmm. and maybe beginning to chip away at particular forms of denial. Yes, I do. I did appreciate that you ended the book on a hopeful note. Yeah. Um, sociologists, as you know, we're often accused of, of, of all the doom and gloom, but short on solutions. Um, and especially in thinking about denial, again, something that we all engage in, maybe even on an everyday basis. Um, it was good to think about, okay, now that I myself am aware of denial and kind of it, its purposes, um, whether for good or for bad, what can I do to disrupt denial? And particularly when it comes to these social issues um, that we ourselves might be in denial of, or that yeah. our loved ones uh, might be actively yeah. denying as well. Yeah, yeah. And so one of the most powerful things that I see in, in uh, our ability to disrupt denial is really in being, it, it, it takes some courage. It takes some, in truth, privilege to be protected from the consequences of doing this, but in disrupting groupthink, particularly in workplaces. For me, I think where most of us are going to engage with the most consequential forms of denial is potentially in in you know, workplaces that might have harmful, harmful policies or policies that don't, um, you know, either protect co-workers or 
you know, the, 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 in our case as students or clients or customers, depending on the nature of the workplace. Mm -hmm. And if you look at stories of, if you look at stories of organizations that have faced real problems with what we call white collar crime, you know, one example is Wells Fargo. Wells mm -hmm. Fargo was for a time engaged in fairly systemic defrauding of customers. Everyday people could be vulnerable to having accounts open in their name that they either didn't understand or didn't know they didn't know existed. And mm -hmm. that could expose you to fines if you were, you know, below certain account limits or, you know, all kinds of potential problems that could have really dire financial consequence consequences. And the people who were able to eventually bring this to light were everyday employees of that company who were largely ignored within the organization, but took the actions to bring it to people's attention within the organization and eventually became whistleblowers. Now, many of those people lost their jobs. So doing these things are risky, mm -hmm. but the outcome of those kinds of disruptions can be really profound and can be really um, kind of game-changing within organizations. So at the kind of institutional level, I, I do think there's a real power, you know, a power of one person, a power of a few people. And generally what we find and this comes from work on bystander research. It comes from work on the dynamics of, of obedience and conformity. Generally speaking, there are multiple people who are concerned, multiple people who share concerns, but they, they kind of live in this fear that other people won't have their back. And so the first person to speak out generally will find some allies and will find that they embolden others who were concerned, but not sure if, if they were right to be concerned. So there can be real power in that. And then I think at the collective level, you know, when you want to talk about social issues, I think seeking out works that center hope, center change, um, you know, something that really helped me was the writing of Rebecca Solnit on the power of hope. And for her, hope isn't a blind faith that things will get better. It's not optimism, but it's rather that the future is not yet decided, which I think is an empirical truth. The future is not yet formed. That doesn't mean today doesn't affect tomorrow. It, it definitely does. But it does mean that we have agency both as individuals, but really more so as groups, as collectives, when we when we combine our agencies, when we combine our power, when we combine our ability to make change, we can really reshape the future. And she's very much in a believer in making sure we know the stories of victories and not just the stories of defeat, because mm -hmm. that can really show us how change is made. Yes. Oh, I love that. Even as you said that about, you know, the future is not yet formed. Um, I got really excited because so many of these social problems, um, they seem, they do seem really big and it yeah. can be overwhelming. Yeah. And so the, we can feel it's safer to deny that they exist <laughs> in order to give us a way to uh, manage our emotions, as you mentioned earlier. And that's what I was thinking a lot about in, in the ways that we deny all these events or activities or on, ongoing problems, you know, managing our emotions, allowing us to, to wake up each day and live in a world that has so many problems that yeah, seem certainly. so big. Um, but then also how denial helps us to manage our identities. So we have these two very strong forces in our lives, our emotions and our identities. And it, it's a lot for us to, to challenge either of those those or to be in the discomfort of remaking or rethinking those. I mean, definitely. Um, definitely. That those are over they they can feel overpowering. And 
thinking about how our emotions contribute to denial, you know, being, being kind of disrupting groupthink can mm-hmm. conjure a lot and draw out a lot of kind of embodied emotional responses. People get, you know, you're going to get stressed, you're going to get nervous. And yet the kind of cathartic nature of it to know that you said your piece, you may have made a difference. Work on whistleblowers suggests that even when they face consequences, they remain steadfast in their belief that they have made a difference. They've done the right thing and they don't have to live with the weight of not having done the right thing. You know, mm-hmm. to go back to my to the area of work that I, I began studying denial with, much of the debate about torture in this country, which which was a really central debate from about 2004 to 2008, George W. Bush's second term here, was precipitated by one U.S. soldier who had obtained CD. I mean, this was back in the day where we we tri- we had digital images <laughs> that we put on CDs. Had got been given some CDs that had these digital images of of torture at Abu Ghraib. And he he kind of held on to them for a month or so because he was unsure of what to do with them. And mm-hmm. he finally turned them over to investigators and it radically changed the trajectory of his life. He has, he has testified to the consequences on himself, his family. Wow. He has said he's largely um, been kind of, kind of a pariah in the community he went home mm-hmm. to and even among some of his family members. Wow. And yet he made a kind of, history shifting difference. And there are other people who are working behind the scenes, military lawyers who did really important things about documenting what they saw, uh, disrupting what they saw internally, that eventually when those documents were released, we had a really important record that said people knew this was wrong and people tried to stop it. And they were, they were intentionally overlooked. And that's an, you know, that, that is an extreme issue because we're talking about the seat of political power. We're talking about people who can lose careers. We're talking about people who are, who are stationed abroad in, in, in detention facilities. Mm-hmm. And there, with the consequences they faced, they, they hold on to that notion that this had to happen. Someone had to stop it. Someone had to reveal it. And so these embodied emotions can feel overwhelming. And yet the act of, act of disrupting denial can really transform them into something meaningful. Mm-hmm. Thank you so much for sharing that. I was getting chills as you were talking because, you know, one person really can make a difference. And that's just such a good example of how that can come to be. And there are, again, many more examples of the victories, right, of people disrupting denial. And yes, there is a very real personal cost, um, but there's also a cost to knowing you should say something or knowing you should do something and then not doing it. Uh, Well, let's take another quick break. You're listening to Let's Grab Coffee on WYXR 91.7 FM. I'm Sanaa, and this is Let's Grab Coffee on WYXR 91.7 FM. I'm talking with Dr. Jared Del Rosso, the author of Denial, How We Hide, Ignore, and Explain Away Problems. Now, Jared, before the break, we had talked a little bit, or you had mentioned at least the bystander effect. And I wanted to talk a little bit more about this in particular because we see so many instances now on social media where people are recording things, um, very terrible things that are are happening. I'm thinking about COVID-19 in particular and a lot of attacks on um, Asian elders. We can think about police violence, um, attacks on Black and Brown men and women. And while 
people are documenting and, and that can be very helpful indeed. Um, there are still actions that are happening that are harming people that sometimes a crowd of people are witnessing, but it seems like no one is doing anything to try to stop it. Um, and, and you talk a, a little bit about denial in terms of the bystander effect and also in terms of kind of organizations as well. And so I'm wondering if you kind of Explain to us how that comes to be that we can maybe even be in a, a group or a small crowd of people seeing something, uh, but yet we don't act on it. Yeah. And so thank you for that question. The, the work on the bystander effect comes out of uh, New York in the 1960s, following the, the murder of a young woman named Kitty Genovese. And the initial reporting suggested that people had watched her be attacked in the street and then her apartment building, and she was eventually eventually murdered. And subsequent research has challenged the the idea that there were these groups of people watching. That wasn't that that wasn't true. Mm -hmm. But the social psychological research that emerged from that was very interested in what can make us decide not to intervene when we see something that is incredibly distressing. Are we callous? Are we indifferent? Or is it something else? And what that research pointed out was most people when they are alone or in a very, very small group will feel an acute sense of responsibility for taking action mm -hmm. and are likely going to intervene and relatively quickly. What that research did was it simulated all kinds of emergencies like smoke entering a, an, a, a room where people were sitting, um, maybe someone falling or someone needing medical attention or a, or a fake theft of goods mm -hmm. and to see whether people would intervene. And when people are on their own, they feel a sense of responsibility. They're not indifferent. They're not callous. But when you put them in groups, first of all, our sense of responsibility dissipates. We, we mm -hmm. feel like you know, if we felt 100% of the responsibility when we were alone, suddenly we're doing some math. I mean, kind of subconsciously, I'm a quarter, I'm 25% responsible because there's three other people or a larger group. I'm feeling much, much smaller sense of responsibility. But there are other social psychological factors. And if you think back to, a, you know, we were talking about how we don't want to notice or look as if we've noticed when we are facing kind of a distressing situation, we get we get confused. We want to assess. We want to stay at an arm, like a figurative arm's length, so we can make a decision. And we're going to pretend like we haven't noticed. And then, if you start looking around, and a lot of people haven't noticed, they look like they haven't noticed. You begin to question: Am I even right to be concerned? Mm, and so this yeah. is the group dynamics: a decrease in responsibility, confusion about whether there's an emergency. And it's not that we're callous. It's not that we're indifferent. But rather, we're kind of in a sense, locked locked into inaction by being in a group. Mm. And so what's interesting when you think about the bystander effect research and contemporary expressions of it through social media where people can document without taking action and we can ask the question, and I don't have one single answer to this. I think it's a complex phenomena. We can ask, is documenting itself a form of intervention? And that is itself a real complexity um, because of the outright physical danger of the kinds of scenes, the kinds of events you're describing mm -hmm. to, to get involved with outright violence and to get outright involved, especially with the violence of the state is, you know, I'm talking here about police violence, right. given the lethal consequences of it is, is, uh, 
an overwhelming kind of decision that I don't think has one, one right answer. So we can ask the question of whether documenting is its own form of intervention or whether documenting allows us to stay disengaged. And I think they're probably dueling, dueling kind of pressures because we have seen the transformative power of documentation mm -hmm. and particularly of, of police violence when to get involved is probably comes at an enormous physical risk and mm -hmm. personal risk. And we have seen the transformative power of that. And often the aftermath of that doesn't play out in a straightforward way. Denial has a way of erasing even the most undeniably documented events by minimizing them, justifying it, or simply protecting, you know, protecting powerful people uh, in the aftermath of what's been documented. But still, those those images are really powerful and, and can be, as we've learned, really altering to 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 our lives. Mm -hmm. Absolutely. Yes. I mean, the how we all engage in denial, I think is so fascinating. As you mentioned earlier, just the language, right? How we make things real or unreal or, or attempt to change the meaning of evidence or actions, I think is important to understand so that we ourselves can be aware of when we're, we're doing it, especially in, in, in times where we need to disrupt the dis denial. And so I love how in the book, not only do you walk us through the different types of denial, um, but also, again, importantly, how we can disrupt denial. And that does indeed give me a lot of hope. Um, in the in the few minutes that we have left, I wanted to ask you a few questions about your writing, uh, okay. because I'm always really intrigued how folks can write such great books um, and the decision making also that goes in the process of what to include, what not to include, the examples um, to include as well. And so I'm wondering for you, as you are writing this book, and you have a lot of um, very recent examples. Um, so I'm wondering, one, um, how did you decide what to include to illustrate some of these different points? Yeah, that's a wonderful question. In part because I, 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 I struggled to keep up, you know, I struggle to keep up with denial because as, as you've been saying, it is so much a part of the fabric of our lives and especially our, our political lives. And there's a, there's a story to be told about how the, you know, the book was fully drafted in April, 2020 in the very early stages, you know, before we really understood COVID-19, we were at the very beginning of that understanding before the murder of George Floyd, before the, the, the protests that emerged from that and the um, violent state repression of those, those protests before COVID denial really kicked in. And, and so having to make decisions in the end about, you know, that material had to be in there, had to be in there but I would never be able to engage with it as fully as some of the work from my own research earlier on, you know, a decade prior almost now. And for me, what was important was, especially when denial was being expressed by the most powerful, powerful of actors. So I'm talking about, you know, our political leaders, you know, our, our elected political officials, whether they be, be, you know, governors that tried to fudge the numbers as in New York, or whether they be, you know, Trump's administration downplaying and denying COVID at almost every step, because those had re really dire consequences for how we respond mm -hmm. to denial. And as well as corporate forms of denial, everything from the, the opioid industry to the petroleum companies that are, that have sowed the seeds of doubt and also profoundly harmed 
the rest of us while making enormous profit off of that harm. To me, that is a deep, deep betrayal of, of, of our lives, essentially. And, you know, that, that we are still living with the inability to act on climate change, the depths of, of the opioid crisis and the cost that that has wrought. I think, you know, even those, those examples were made in passing. I wanted to ensure that they were spoken to when, when writing about denial. Mm-hmm. Thank you. Um, what is next for you? Will there be more work on denial or is there something else that maybe you've been working on or thinking about? Yeah, that's a wonderful question. So I've been harboring this desire to to pivot towards environmental sociology and to bring some some deep passions from the rest of my life. I'm a bird watcher. I'm a gardener. I teach classes on urban wildlife uh, at my university. And I'm thinking a lot about the ways in which people understand other, other species, the ways in which those species become invisible to us or visible to us. And so that speaks to these attention management strategies that you talked about earlier and the ways in which that intersect with our needs to address conservation, to address climate change, how that will be expressed in publications, I'm not yet sure. It's not exactly what I've been doing. It's a it's a pretty hard pivot. And yet it's still informed by these things like, how do we learn different types of attention? Mm-hmm. How do we learn to see things that were once invisible to us? And what are the consequences of these new forms of, of seeing in terms of how we think about our relationship with the world? And I'm just kind of deeply passionate about helping, you know, helping my students, helping others, helping myself relearn to see this, this really rich, but also very precarious world around us of other living beings. And so that's what I'm working on right now. Oh, I love it. I cannot wait um, for that future research. Well, Dr. Del Rosso, thank you so much for being here with us this morning. I absolutely loved your book and there's so much in here that already I'm like, okay, I'm pointing out, I'm seeing, you know, as, as different people are kind of talking about different scandals and denying. So I'm already able to use everything that I've learned from your book. Thank you so much. Thank you so much. I really appreciate it. Thank you again to Dr. Jared Del Rosso. He is the author of Denial, How We Hide, Ignore, and Explain Away Problems. To say I love this book would be an understatement. I'm sure you could already tell all of my excitement throughout our conversation. And it's because denial is something that we all do. We are all engaged in a variety of different strategies to deny, to ignore, um, to try to justify or excuse things we've said or things we've done. And so it's so applicable to our daily lives. And again, I feel like the book also has given me um, a toolkit to kind of understand the different denials that happen when it comes to scandals or when it comes to these social problems um, that are shaping our, our world. And I think that's really important. And most of all, and I think this is so key, and I'm so glad that Dr. Del Rosso ended his book with examples of how to disrupt denial, because that is what we have to do, particularly as we are thinking about social problems. We do not want to deny that they exist. We need to acknowledge them. How do we do so, not just for ourselves, but also disrupting denial around us as well. So such an amazing book. I, again, so glad um, that he and I were able to chat with you all this morning. 
For today's positive note, I just want to reiterate something that Dr. Del Rosso said, which is the future is not yet formed. Oh, I love that. There is so much hope and excitement and possibility in that truth. The future is not yet formed. That means there is still time for us to create the future that we want to see that will benefit all of us an equitable future, a future that is full of hope and joy. Ah, that makes me so excited. Well, thank you so much for hanging out with me this morning. Don't forget, I'm here every Monday morning. And in case you want to re-listen to a show or send it to a friend, you can always subscribe to Let's Grab Coffee in podcast format wherever you stream podcasts. I can't wait for you to join me next Monday morning. 